0: Morning. My name is Wayne Stiles. It's good to be invited to be a guest speaker here at Marathon Class, <laughs> and it's great to be back. It really is. I tell you what: even a month in Israel, you feel like uh, you really miss home. You miss the all things familiar. Uh, you miss not, um, with all the blessings notwithstanding. Living in a ten by ten room out of a suitcase for a month is is uh, it gets creative. I mean, how 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 many times can you wear the same clothes? You know, inside, outside, upside down. But we uh, Kathy and I had the privilege of being part of two tours in Israel. We helped to lead two different tours. One with Inside for Living. We were the uh, the bus. uh, I was the bus teacher on one of the buses for Insight for Living, and that was a blessing, always is. And then after that, we had two, three days of in-between tours where we did some filming for my uh, website, the virtu- virtual tours website, Walking the Bible Lands. And then we led another tour, which was our personal tour, which some from the class actually went on, which was a real blessing. And by the way, the the tour that Carol was referring to was not the, the actual tour, but it was the virtual tour of the Passion Week, which is just a series of videos. So, And you don't have to go to Israel to experience some of the blessings of being in Israel. If you want to just look at the video series that Carol was mentioning, you can go to uh, waynestyles.com, and it should be right there at the top. I'll leave it up there for another week, but you can watch the videos that just walk you through the, the Passion Week of Jesus and all the the days that he experienced there including from from Sunday to Sunday from the 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 uh, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. So uh, you know you can't travel without having some snafus. There's no way to to get around it from people walking. It's funny to wa- to watch folks who've never been to Israel before and some of the questions they ask. Like I think one guy came up to me and and asked one one uh, morning at the hotel buffet, where's the bacon? <laughs> no bacon, no ham for another two weeks, my friend. And, and the Sabbath elevators are always fun as, as well. They have elevators that on the Sabbath, they allow um, Orthodox Jews that don't want to work by pushing buttons You just walk into the elevator, and it takes you all the way to the top, and then stops at every single floor on the way down. You got to be paying attention, otherwise, because if it's a tall hotel, you're you have to go through the whole deal again. I've never figured out though why it's not work to push a button, but you still got to carry your luggage. You still got to put your room key in, and there's there's some things that just you know don't make a lot of sense there, but. It was a great blessing, and thank you so much for your prayers. I know that we, um, you prayed for us while we were gone, and some of the prayer requests I sent out through the Marathon email, some specifics, and very much appreciate uh, your, your lifting us up in prayer. It made all the difference. It really did. This was a blessed, blessed time. And uh, nevertheless, it's great to be back, really good to be back. While we were there, though, it was Passover. Passover started, I guess, a little over a week ago. And, of course, the Sabbath is always kind of a speed bump in your, in your uh, trying to travel, and you have to arrange sites that are open and not open to can we go, can we not go. So the Sabbath is always a little bit of a workaround, but Passover is a big workaround. I mean, it's a big deal. Once a year, like the country shuts down. And you think about us for Christmas is probably about the best example I can think of. Remember one time our family wanted to go out and eat on Christmas. We couldn't find anything that was open. It's like that in Passover in Israel. In fact, even the gas stations closed, and we were trying to put gas in our rent car on the way back, and we finally found a gas station that was open. Thank goodness for non-religious Jews in, 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 in Israel. What would we have done? I wanted to give them a hug thank you so much for not believing the Bible. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. But, but uh, anyway, but there are some other kind of interesting things about Passover. You know, Passover begins, as we're going to talk about, also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so for a whole week, you don't have – you can't eat bread, which is great until you want pizza. We walked into a pizza place and ordered a pizza, and the guy said, boy, it's really glad. It's a really good thing that you ordered pizza because here in about a couple of hours, we couldn't have served pizza to you for a whole week. I thought, wow, we'll take two pizzas. That sounds wonderful. And the next morning, at the breakfast buffet, they had their whole normal array of jellies with matzah. You know the little matzah crackers that you can buy here at Kroger? In Texas, they had that's what they serve. Have you ever tried jelly on matzah? It's just not the same. But, you know, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all the feasts, I guess, so to speak, it's sort of otherworldly. It's sort of over there Lee it's not something that we as christians really think about much oh of course you know you'll have a passover seder that you might get invited to something like that where you can participate but going and actually being there and in in a sense also being inconvenienced by it is um it gives you pause it forces a pause which is what the Sabbath was meant to do every week anyway, but the feasts force a pause upon you and in some sense force you to stop and reflect a little bit, and that's part of what they were meant to do. Uh, rather, rather than get right back into the book of Mark, you know, we were going through the book of Mark. You know. Laughter uh, I thought we'd take just a couple of Sundays and look at the Feast because Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread stopped yesterday, so it's not, uh, it's not an otherworldly thing. It's actually – it was current. It's something that actually stopped yesterday. I thought we'd take a couple of Sundays and just look at how these feasts apply to us as Christians. Um, the principles of it are very significant to us as Christians. And you don't have to be Jewish to appreciate it, because as we'll see from even what the Apostle Paul is going to teach us, there are things that we can learn, even as Christians, that are timeless truths from these feasts that seem to be old, irrelevant, who cares? Well, we should. And this morning, we're going to talk about why. So let's turn together to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, 23. When's the last time you heard a message from Leviticus? We'll look at at Leviticus as well as a couple of other passages that are relevant to it. But the holidays, the Jewish holidays, are Jewish holy days. Same idea. For them, it's the same thing. And they always reflect history. You think even about our holidays. Holidays typically connect with history. Whether it's your birthday, your anniversary, or Washington's birthday, there's something that is connected to history, and the holiday has the purpose of bringing it back around so that you don't forget. You know, if we didn't have communion, we'd, we could easily forget about what it's about. If we didn't have um, Memorial Day, or your anniversary, or uh, Christmas, holidays have the purpose of not just giving you time off or time to rest, but time to reflect on a significant historical event that occurred that we must not forget. And the feasts were that for Israel, and they are that for us. Leviticus 23, we're introduced to Israel's holidays or holy days, and let's pick up uh, down in verse 4. Leviticus 23, verse 4. Moses writes, "...these are the appointed times of the Lord." Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. Convocation, it's not a word we use a lot. It basically just means a gathering or an assembly or a get-together. Like uh, in May, we're going to have a family convocation in Kathy's uh, hometown, a family get-together. Convocation is not just, um, it's special because it's holy. The word holy means set apart. It's not just a normal gathering. This is a special one. It's a holy one. When we think of something as holy or as the Lord as holy, we talk about him being set apart or unique, and it's the same idea here. This is a gathering that's not like a typical gathering. This gathering is holy because it's devoted to God. It's a time of the Lord, verse 4, but it is a holy gathering to proclaim uh, to proclaim at the times appointed for them. There were three times that, that they would gather every year uh, spring, summer, fall. And they were holy convocations. The first one was Passover. And you remember the historical event connected to the Passover. It is reflected in the book that is just prior to Leviticus, and that is Exodus. The book of Exodus centers around the event of the Exodus or the exit from Egypt. The Hebrews were enslaved for centuries in Egypt, and the Lord, by His grace and by His mighty hand, redeemed them, bought them, saved them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out with a mighty hand. The Passover is what began that. In the New Testament, the the most important event is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the most important event was the Exodus. The Exodus was the redemption of the Hebrews, and it was the beginning of them as a nation. Israel started after the Exodus, the nation of Israel. It was the most important event in the Old Testament, and that's why you find in the Old Testament uh, constantly pointing back to the Exodus. You know, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt, or even in idolatry, they would refer to it. These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The redemption from Egypt was a big deal, and the Passover was the celebration of it. The Passover, of course, came about because of the last of the plagues. Remember, the last plague that the Lord used against Egypt was the death of the firstborn, and the first, all the firstborn. The Lord said, "Is going to die, but you can redeem your firstborn if you believe." And basically, basically, you showed that you believed by slaughtering a lamb, an innocent lamb, and uh, applying some of its blood with hyssop on the the lintel and on the doorposts of your house. And when the death angel would pass through, he would pass over the home that had the blood on it. In other words, the home that had faith that this simple act is all that was necessary to save their son from death. Well, of course, Pharaoh didn't do that. Pharaoh's own son was killed, and Pharaoh rushed to Moses and said, Leave, and they left in haste. And this began the Hebrew nation, and it began the Hebrew calendar. Look at verse 5. It says, In the first month... On the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. The first Passover, we're told here, occurred in their month, and their first month is Nisan. Uh, It occurred on the 14th day of the month, which became for them the very first month. Uh, Exodus chapter 23 also tells us in verse 15 that this feast was to occur at the time of uh, Abib or Aviv. It was, it's a Hebrew word that refers to the time in spring when the grain begins to ripen. It seems a little odd. Why would God make a connection between the time in spring when the grain would begin to ripen? That's he, why he uses that word abib and connect that with the Passover. Why would he make that connection? Well, track with me for just a second. The Hebrew month, uh, the word for month in Hebrew, or new month, is also the word for new moon. A Hebrew's calendar was a lunar calendar, and it went from moon to moon. Ours is a solar calendar. Uh, Our calendar is not based the same way that theirs is. So every new moon would happen every 29 and a half days. And that works for most months, no big deal, it's about, you know, the length of a month. But over the course of a year, a Jewish year would lose 11 days every year. And so over, after about three years, they would add another month in to make up for those 30 or so lost days. Why would they do that? They did that because if they didn't, the Passover would eventually get would get scooted out of the springtime. And it would get pushed further and further, and it would start rotating all throughout the year. But the Lord wanted it to stay connected to spring. He wanted the Passover to be connected with Ab- Abib, with the time of of the uh, the grain began to ripening. Why? Because he wanted not just the the, uh, the holiday to preserve its historical and religious value, but also he wanted it to stay connected with the springtime and agriculture so that he would teach them that the God who redeemed them was also the God who provided for them. That there was not just a separation between our salvation and then now we deal with our day-to-day needs on our own. He wanted them to realize every Passover that the God who redeemed you is also the God who provides for you. And so he required that they keep the feast in the spring at the time when the grain begins to ripen. Uh, A very similar thing was done when Joshua crossed the Jordan River. Remember when Joshua crossed the Jordan, the Jordan parted. And Joshua made the connection between the Jordan parting and the Red Sea parting. He said, just as the, as the Lord redeemed us from Egypt 40 years prior, now the Lord is taking us into the land. The very same God who redeemed us is the God who will lead us home. It's the same principle. And you know what? The same principle is true for us. Paul writes in Romans, in chapter 8, I think it's about verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The God who gave us his own son, uh, taking care of our needs is a very easy thing. He can do that. There's a connection between redemption and your day-to-day faith. They are not separate things. The faith that you have in Jesus Christ to save you is the same faith that you have every single day of your life. Passover is a meal, we're told that they were to eat at twilight, the verse says here, uh, verse five. The, uh, 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 yeah, verse five, at twilight, or literally, you should have in the margin of your Bible between the two evenings. What does that mean? But what, is, what does that mean, between two evenings? Well, the evening, it's probably talking about uh, after 12 o'clock noon when the evening starts or the sun starts to set. So that's evening number one, as it were, as it's called evening, and then when it actually gets dark. So between the evenings is between noon and about 6 o'clock or about 3 o'clock is when they were to do this. That also lines up with what the, the Jewish Mishnah says is the time that it's supposed to happen, and interestingly, that's also the time that the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was it 3 o'clock. When Jesus appeared on the scene, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, the Lamb only referred to one thing in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God was a reference to the Passover Lamb. So for John the Baptist to point to Jesus and say, It's the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, was freighted with meaning. It was very, very, very significant for John to say that. Interestingly, John didn't fully understand that, because later he would question Jesus, are you really the Messiah or not? But later, John would, John would get it. But the connection is wonderful, because Jesus made that same connection the night before he died. Remember, he was in the upper room with the apostles, and he was there, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. Jesus connected his death with the new covenant. And so in a very similar way, he's saying the same thing. And the first Passover instituted the old covenant. The last Passover, Jesus said there in the upper room, would institute the new covenant. The first Passover lamb died and the old covenant began. The final Passover lamb died and the new covenant began. Jesus is making that connection. I love that the connection that Derek Kidner made, great scholar, Old Testament Hebrew scholar, Kidner said that he observed that when Eve took and ate the fruit, it set in motion the chain reaction of sin, and Jesus in the same way tells us to take and eat of the Lord's Supper, which helps us remember the resolution for sin. Here's a principle that I hope that you will not forget that we can lift from this text Um, how do you apply leviticus how do you apply any old testament book that seems to be out of date even out of touch irrelevant to us paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully how can we use it lawfully how can we apply leviticus to our lives this is a great example you take the timeless truth that's being applied in that way that specific way then You take that timeless truth and you drop it down into your situation today and you can apply it. Now, what's the timeless truth that they were applying that we can also apply? It's this. Here's the principle. We should regularly remember and celebrate our deliverance from sin's penalty. For them, it was deliverance from slavery, but for us, it's slavery to sin. We should regularly remember and celebrate our deliverance from sin's penalty. We do that, by and large, through communion, through the Lord's Supper. You know, in Exodus, it wasn't enough that the lamb be killed and its blood be applied. It had to happen by faith. And it's not enough that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you have to apply that. You get forgiveness of that, not just because Jesus did it, but because you believe it, that because you receive it personally, that that is applied to your heart, to your life, by faith. That's where it begins, but that's not where it ends. Um, It goes on in verse 6, look at the feast that begins right after the feast of Passover. This is where it gets very, very practical for us. Moses writes in verse 6, Then on the fifteenth day of the same month there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work. So here's what what, what that's saying. The Passover is on the 14th day of the month, so you celebrate the Passover. The very next day, the 15th day of the month, begins a week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. And feast is sort of a generous term, because if you're not eating bread with leaven in it, you're not probably going to eat a lot of bread, because it's not that palatable. But the only bread you would eat would be unleavened bread. And what did that represent? Well, if you look at the text, you can sort of get the implication of it, which the rest of the Bible gives us in clarity. But if you look at the text here, it says, um, "'For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread.'" And then also, on verse 8, it says, for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So there's something between an offering, which would be a payment of sin, and eating unleavened bread. So for seven days you're eating unleavened bread, for seven days there's an offering. So there's some connection between the unleavened bread and sin. And it says also that at the beginning of the seven days you'll have a holy convocation or you'd gather, and at the end of that seven days you would gather again. So, you've got a gathering at the beginning, a gathering at the ending, and every day in between, you don't eat bread with leaven in it, and there is an offering that would be for sin. So, there's a connection between the leaven and sin. There's a connection. Uh, You remember, you know, we're not, none of us are too uh, young in this room to remember the blue laws of. uh, of yesteryear, weren't that wasn't that long ago? That uh, I remember, we would have uh, stuff would be closed on Sunday. You know, Chick Fil A is like the only one still flying the flag of of the old blue laws. But we'd have things that would be closed on Sunday. And there's nothing necessarily in the scripture that requires that businesses be closed on Sunday. But it's interesting that we we had that law. There was this general cultural sense of stop work, of pause, and and go to church. And even today on Sunday, I mean, the malls are open, but they're open just a little later than they are normally. Um, won't be long, and Sunday will just be a day like any other day. But Passover, as I mentioned in Israel, and, and the, even the Sabbath is a big deal. On the Sabbath, stuff does close. I mean, you'll walk through Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and the, the line of shops that was busy will be just you know a, a long hallway of closed metal doors, and it's just empty. Now it's just a, a sidewalk to walk on, as opposed to the day before, it was this, this um, confusing place to walk. The, um, but the Passover is a really big deal. Everything closes down, as I shared. And they, uh, they basically use it as an opportunity for a good spring cleaning. I remember at the hotel, I was sitting in the lobby doing some work, and I saw this guy come with a mop bucket and a mop, and the guy started mopping the walls. When's the last time you've mopped your walls? <laughs> Well, This guy, <laughs> not only that, how'd you like the job of mopping the walls at, at a hotel? There's a lot of walls at that hotel. This man was mopping the walls. And I actually snapped a picture of it. I, I uh, should have brought it to show it to you, but but I thought, that is so interesting that they take such passion in making sure that this hotel is leaven-free. And they gave everybody a little handout in their room that said, you know, Passover begins, please don't bring any outside food into the hotel, because we want to keep the hotel, you know, free of leaven and we want to keep it kosher. There is an effort at at least honoring the, uh, the, the kosher laws and the Passover, even in hotels, mopping the walls. I thought that was so interesting. Uh, imagine if you had the same resolve in your life to remove sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's look at how the Apostle Paul applies the timeless truths of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to your life today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, the context, of course, is Paul rebuking the Corinthians for tolerating immorality in their church. Not only tolerating it, but even celebrating it and boasting of it, it, which from our perspective seems amazing, and yet that was their culture. He says that in verse 2, you've become arrogant about it. In verse 6, he says, you're boasting about it. And let's read starting verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So clearly, Paul is using the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread as a lesson. He's saying, look, let's lift the timeless truths of that which no longer applies to us by the letter of the law, but the principle still applies. That is that the leaven in your life is to be removed. That Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's basically saying if you tolerate this in your lives, if you tolerate just a little compromise in your life, saying, eh, it's no big deal, just kind of sweep it under the rug. just." don't talk about it, don't deal with it, you, you know it's wrong, but it's okay, it's just a little. A little leaven, he says, leaven's a whole thing. You've probably noticed that if there's something like in a job or a business, if there's, if there's gossip or if there's some kind of you know, murmuring that's going on that's not dealt with, it grows. It doesn't typically solve itself, it gets worse. It's like saying, you're walking out to your garden and seeing a weed. So, you know, that'll probably just go away. (laughs) No, you walk out tomorrow and there's three weeds. It doesn't take care of itself. You've got to take care of it. It's the same way with leaven. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Which is an interesting phrase. Just as you are, in fact. He says, you are, in fact, unleavened. When God sees you, he sees you without sin. Because of Jesus Christ. He sees you as an unleavened lump. And that's good news. Without any sin. So he says, because that's how you are seen by God, Live in light of that. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as, in fact, you are. Live the way God sees you, is what he's saying. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Think about that. Remember, the Passover happened first on the 14th day, and then as a result of that, then they lived the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Think about that principle as Paul's applying it. Why do we want to clean the sin about out of our lives? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Why do we want to live a life that's holy? Out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Notice, when you think about historically the way things worked, God didn't come to Israel and say, here's the Bible, do this, and I'll redeem you. No, he redeemed them. Then he took them to Mount Sinai and gave them the Bible. He gave the scripture to a people already redeemed. That's important. God didn't come to you and say, here's my list of rules that I need you to follow and then I'll save you. He saves you by his grace. First and last by his grace. So then why do we have this book of rules? Not in order to be saved, but in order to express our love to the God who has saved us. Therefore, let us, verse 8, Paul says, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Paul is making a connection here between leaven and sin, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, the feast was never about mopping the walls. It was about mopping our hearts. It was about using the time that whole week long as every day you're offering this sacrifice. You're thinking about the lack of leaven or the lack of sin. Not only that I'm eating, but that I'm doing. Keep your finger here in uh, 1 Corinthians, but turn back to Exodus. Look at a verse, Exodus chapter 13, where the original Passover occurred. Because the principle that we just walked through is not unique with Paul. It's unique with the Lord through Moses at the very beginning of of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Exodus 13, let's begin at verse 6. It says, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened uh, shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So why would they eat unleavened bread? When your child asks you, God, or or dad, why are we doing this? Mom, why are we doing this? You are to say, it is because of what the Lord did for me. Why do we eat unleavened bread? It's because God saved us. He redeemed us. Verse 9, and it shall serve as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. Eating this unleavened bread was to remind them that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. The purpose of eating unleavened bread was not a diet code. It was a reminder that God had saved them. It was a reminder to live an unleavened life. This is what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 5. Turn back to that and see if that context now doesn't help this, this passage move from this odd application to all of a sudden very, very practical. Again, let's read 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. "'Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast.'" Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I love the way Paul writes this in the original language. In the Greek, it literally is not just let us celebrate, but let us continually celebrate. It's something that's continually done. And I don't know about you, but getting sin out of my life is a continual project. You too? Oh, good remember several years ago, I was leaving the house early mornings. I always leave, even when it's still dark, there's not even any traffic on the road. It's the best time to be out, it really is. So, anyway, I had my coffee in one hand, and I had my briefcase or, or whatever books in the other hand. And, you know, I raised the garage with your elbow because you don't have another arm. So you hit the garage door, and the garage door is coming out, it's pitch black. So I'm walking out and a spider had woven a I mean it probably took this poor spider all night long to weave this thing right in my path. And it's dark, I don't know it. I'm just walking on all of a sudden the spider web right in my face. Coffee in my hand, you know it's like how do you how do you deal with the a spider web all over your face. So finally I get in the car and I get it off and I get the ooh factor gone. Because that's that's the main thing you're dealing with is just ugh. So I'm driving to work. About five minutes later, I feel something crawling on the back of my neck. And it must have looked hilarious because there's nobody else on the street, and yet my car is just weaving all over the place trying to kill this spider. So finally, I get the, the spider. Twenty minutes later, I'm sitting in my office. The thing is crawling on my arm. <laughs> this time, I know I killed it. I mean, I put it on the floor, and I, mean, I stepped on it like ten times. <laughs> the thing was dead. And I remembered this yesterday. <laughs> Kathy and I were in the kitchen uh, doing some cooking and stuff, and Kathy sees this spider, and she tries to kill it with this napkin. And the spider just kind of does this and then comes back to life. And she did it like two or three times, and finally it took me with my bare thumb. (laughs) And that spider was dead. But that's what sin is like in our life, isn't it? You think you've got the thing killed, and all of a sudden it comes back. You think you've dealt with it with your tongue and all of a sudden outfly words that you wouldn't say to a goat. You think you've dealt with lust, and all of a sudden you find your eyes wandering once again. You think you've dealt with contentment and a visit to a friend's house and her new draperies. You think, I really need those. It wasn't meant to be funny, but you can laugh if you want to. <laughs> That's what it is, isn't it, in our lives? It's like a spider we can't kill. We crush it and crush it and crush it and it keeps coming back. This is why Paul says, let us therefore continually celebrate the feast. Let's continually work on getting the leaven out of our lives because the victorious Christian life is not a life that doesn't struggle with sin. It's a life that has victory in the struggle with sin. Victory presupposes a battle. Think about that. You're victorious over something. It's the fight. It's the daily fight with your flesh, with your sin. The victorious Christian life is not a life of sinless perfection. It is a life of struggle against sin. Now, the penalty of sin is gone, praise God. The moment Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took that away for all of us who believe in him. And the good news is even the power of sin in our life is gone. Romans 6 clearly teaches us that we are no longer under the domination of sin. If we sin, it's because we choose to, not because we have to. But the presence of sin. Romans 7. Paul says, I don't know why I do what I do. I hate it. But thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ. The penalty is gone, the power is gone, but the presence is not gone until we are with the Lord. Jonathan Edwards said it this way in one of his wonderful resolutions. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Once again, he said, resolved never to give over, nor in the, in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. This is why Paul says, let's continually celebrate the feast. It's not insignificant. I think we fail when we, when we don't remind ourselves both of our past and our future. Our past should remind us of humility and grace. God saved us when we were enemies. When we were loving our sin, God saved us. Jim, just by His grace. And our future also gives us hope not to give up, that one day He's coming for us. One day, uh, or He'll take us home to be with Him. If we continually celebrate the feast, even in our daily lives, not just once a week at Passover, or once a year at Passover for a week. But every day in our lives, continually celebrate the feast, you draw upon the strength of God. I read about a, a group of people up in New York. One summer, they were dealing with a drought, and it was killing all their lawns. And they, uh, you know, they just kind of like us, we just take it for granted. About mid-July and August, we just quit trying. You know We just decide that brown grass is the way it is until, until spring. But uh, they decided they didn't want to do that, so they paced back and forth across their lawns with green spray paint, and they had lush, beautiful green lawns that they never had to care for. And uh, I thought about that for a moment and thought, well, I probably wouldn't fly down here, but I also thought, you know what, There's, there's a way that we still do that, isn't it, in our hearts? We struggle with life. Um, we struggle hard with life in social cir- circles where hurting is unacceptable, even in church. we quickly learn how to paint on the smiles we 'll pace back and forth a few times and just you know paint on the smile how you doing? Praise the Lord never better when inside you 're dying. The reality is and I don't mean to be a downer at all, but the reality is if each one of us could stand up and be honest, brutally honest, we might be shocked at the level of pain that we have this morning in this room. There's there's a part of that that is okay because that's normal. What is not okay is that we have such a culture where we have feel like we have to fake it. Where we where we where we pace back and forth with the spray paint can, even in church. Um, it's one thing as laymen to do that, but staff and even elders. You know, I've been in ministry my whole vocational life, and I'm telling you, without exception, there are some places that it is not safe to be honest, and that's a shame. God has hardwired us with a void in our lives. And that void, he doesn't take away when he saves us. He fills it. We try to fill that void with other things, but God fills it with himself. Listen to what Paul wrote to um, the Romans. You don't need to turn there, but the verses, Romans six seventeen and 18 just listen to these great words. He says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I love that because one of the things the Hebrews forgot in the Exodus is that God redeemed them from slavery, not to freedom to do whatever they wanted, but Redeemed them from slavery to Pharaoh to now the privilege of being servants of God. It's the same with us. Christ has not saved us to give us the freedom to do whatever we want. He saved us now with the obligation that we would no longer live for ourselves, as Paul said, but that we would live for him who died for us and rose again on our behalf. Let's close in prayer. And as we do, I want to read Jesus' words from Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. And then I want to read Paul's words from 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. So just listen to the words first of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Our Father, we all face the temptation of filling the the emptiness within in a worldly way that doesn't satisfy it's only in those, those brief moments or those prolonged days of fellowship with you where you fill that void and there is nothing more satisfying in our lives than knowing that we are walking in the light, that we're walking in fellowship with you, and that we have that, that unleavened life before you, that we are able to live in even if the, those brief moments of faithfulness and in fellowship with you. And Father, there, there may be those who are here today, um, for whatever reason, have not yet come to the place where they have the confidence that if they were to die in this moment, that they would stand before you and know that they would be accepted. Would you open their hearts to the grace and the invitation in the words of Christ that we just read to come to Him? to lay down their burden of trying to live a good and godly life and instead receive the grace that is that is theirs to receive of Christ's death on the cross for them that their sins are forgiven simply by faith. And for those of us who have made that commitment, remind us, Father, each day that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. It's a done deal. It's over. And now we live a life We continually celebrate the feast, a life of unleavened, uh, without sin, not sinless, but it's our goal to please you out of gratitude from what Jesus has done for us. Father, thank you for this feast, that we get these principles from it that can give us insight into our lives. Leviticus is not a dead text. It's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And even Leviticus can give us encouragement to walk faithfully with you. So help us do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.